We are going to continue on in our series in Romans. And I know as we, as we embark on this series, it's tough at times, isn't it? Because we're preaching about our nature and we have to come to grips with who we really are apart from Jesus Christ. And that's sinners. And Paul, what he's doing in these first two and a half chapters is hemming us in. Like he's, he said, there's nowhere that you can escape. There's, there's nowhere to go to, to escape from your sin. We're all sinners, all of us. And it's tough. It's, it's, it's difficult news because we don't necessarily want to hear that, right? We think we're okay. We're pretty good. We have our pride. We do good things. But, but this section of Romans is saying, no, no, you don't. You don't have what it takes to please God. You don't have what it takes to get into heaven on your own. You don't want to have what it takes to, to, um, honor or merit God's favor. We're sinners, man. We're just, we're, and Paul is just, no matter where you try to run, go over here, no, I'm a sinner. I never heard about Jesus, no, I'm a sinner. Right? Every time. Because he wants to lead us to Jesus Christ. Because there's no other way. There's no other answer. So as difficult as these sections are in dealing with our sin nature, it gets so good because it drives us to the only one who delivers us and who loves us, who's able to deliver us, and that's Jesus Christ. So I just want to put that out there as we get started this morning. Our Old Testament scripture is Psalm 22, verses 22 through 31. I'm going to ask you to please turn to Psalm 22 and read from those verses 22 through 31. Because salvation is for all those, all kinds of people. So he says this after um, most of you, most of us know the first half of this psalm because it speaks to Jesus directly on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as it goes on, as the good news goes out, it goes out to everyone. So in beginning in verse 22, we're told this, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he has cried to him. From you comes my praise in the congregation. My vows I will perform before the Lord, whom who fear and those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And then in verse 27, all ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before before him shall bow, I'm sorry, before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. And so I want to end, I'll end the reading at that point because all need the Lord Jesus Christ. And then our passage this morning in Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. In verses 12 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. 
Paul has turned his attention to the Jews, but he kind of goes back right at this point to the Gentiles. He does a little comparison between those who have the written law and those who do not. And he says this, verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus, by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. Lord, we do thank you for your word and for this day, for bringing us together, Lord. And I just pray that by your spirit, by the Holy Spirit, you will illuminate our hearts. Help us to be engaged, fully engaged, Lord God, with your word this morning. Our, don't let our thoughts drift out to what's happening later today, tomorrow, next week. But may we be focused on Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring, bring your spirit to me that I may deliver your words, Lord, that bring honor and glory to your name, that edify your saints, that encourage us, that challenge us to live more and more for Jesus Christ and less and less for ourselves. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, just by way of a quick review, what we talked about in the last couple of weeks. Number one, we learned that it's a big mistake to presume, to, to just take for granted or to assume that because a person is raised in the Christian ethos, you know, in the church and, you know, you have your kids going to Christian school and in your home you do your devotion, so on and so forth. Those are all wonderful things. We ought to be doing that. But just because we do that doesn't guarantee that your children, your offspring will become Christians, will automatically be Christians. Please don't fall into that trap. Please don't make that mistake. We have to witness, you have to preach the gospel to your kids each and every day as we're raising them. So we don't assume that they're saved in that way. I've talked to many, a distraught parent over the years, you know, but we did all of this and our kids turned out that way and, you know, they're gone from the Lord. What did we do wrong? You know, uh, listen, there are definitely advantages to being in the covenant community with God, obviously, we have those advantages of the word being preached, being here at church, so on and so forth. But it's not a guarantee, not a guarantee that you'll be converted. How many kids go to church through their uh, young days into middle school, high school, go off to college and bye bye, Lord, we'll see you later. I'm off doing my own thing because they never were truly grounded. They were never truly converted, regenerated to Christ. So want to make sure that we um, as we, as we spoke to that, that we were very well, well aware of that as, as believers. Advantages, sure, but no guarantees in that regard. Why? Because we're under the law. We are under God's law. That's the standard. His law is the standard that judges us. We have to meet that standard perfectly. So here's some facts. Number one, we talked about this. Every person, to one degree or another, knows the law of God, and so we're accountable for the level of knowledge that we have. We know what God demands of us. And we're going to see today, even those who never had the Bible, who never had Scripture, they still know the law of God to a certain degree. Every single person 
has transgressed, each one of us. Is there anybody here that has never transgressed the law? You know, I, we try hard. We want to do better. I'm, I'm doing the best that I can. At least I'm not as, hey, have you kept it perfectly? That's the holy standard. Again, that's why Jesus came to do that. So Christ kept the law perfectly because we cannot do that. He came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. So everybody who trusts in Christ, who receives Christ by grace, you receive his benefits. You're counted as righteous. You're declared not guilty. It's as if you have kept the law perfectly at all its points. Again, that just blows your mind to even think about that. But that's what being in Christ does for us. So what Paul's doing here, and what we just read, and we're going to look at today, he is making a distinction between those who don't have the written law. They never had the Bible. They never had the, the, the prophets come to them and speak God's law to them. He's making a distinction between those who do not have the written law and those who do. Now, some have greater knowledge of the law. Those of us, if you're in church, you know God's law. You know God's standard. You know how sinful we are. You know how gracious Christ is. You know those things, but there's so many that do not know that. But... All have some. And that's his point. Every single person has some and they have sufficient, get that down, they have sufficient knowledge of the law of God that holds them accountable. Right? So now we have two things. We have general revelation. We learned all about that. We spent several sermons talking about God's creation. What's that do? Does that, that, that shows us that God exists. What do we do with that truth? We take it, we suppress it on righteousness, we build idols. That's external witness to the reality of God, that he exists and we're accountable to him. Never forget that. Every person has that knowledge from creation. We suppress that, we twist that, we turn it. But there's also an internal knowledge, man. That's what's so, the Lord gives us that, the internal knowledge of himself through the moral law of God. That's Paul's argument here. So nobody gets off the hook. You can't say, well, I didn't know. No, no, you knew enough. You had enough to be to hold accountable. You need to turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we talk about the moral law. What's that? That's the law of God that flows from his holy nature. That's It's God who is altogether holy, righteous, and just. It is his law that reflects his character, that, that gives us the unchanging standard. We don't live in a relativistic world where the standards change from one day to the next. Well, I feel like doing this, and well, today this is right. Tomorrow that's going to be wrong. Today this is wrong. Tomorrow that's going to be right. No, 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 no. God's standard is the standard unchanging grounded once for all, forever, amen. It's a standard of righteousness. It's summarily comprehended where at in the Ten Commandments, right? And we've talked about this before. Every commandment goes back to almost every single action in life. You can always trace it back to the word of God and to the commandments at some point. So this is all kind of extended review for, for you guys. Apart from Christ, we're going to be judged accordingly, according to the light that you have. Everybody, nobody's off the hook. Nobody is off. You need to get tough like this, Christian, right? Because people will say, you know, oh, but they never heard of God. What about the poor person in the deepest parts of the jungles in Africa or South America? And they're just, they never heard. How can this, how could they be held accountable to God? This is how they could be held accountable to God. Just like everybody else. Just like so many in our own nation that have thwarted the scriptures, that have gotten rid of the Bible, that barely know anything about scripture. They're still going to be held accountable because of the knowledge that they have that God has given them through creation, 
also through the internal witness. So get tough here, Christian, because this is a real pushback that we get. Even within progressive circles in Christianity, there are you know, so-called Christians or in progressive churches that do this kind of thing and say, you know, God's more or less a universalist. Or if somebody didn't get the chance to hear, then they are automatically going to go to heaven. It doesn't work like that because we all know in our heart of hearts who he is and through his law. You will. It says, Paul says, for all who've sinned without the law, doesn't say they're going to get a pass. You know, they didn't have the law, they didn't have the written law, so they're going to, you know, there's an exception there. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? But he says, no, no, no. He says, they will perish without the law. Those who've sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So when he's saying, it's according to the knowledge that they have, they will answer for that. And everybody has knowledge because God makes sure that he's giving you the knowledge of himself through his law, through creation. Capiche? Do you understand? That's what Paul's saying here. So we could have a whole sermon on the level of knowledge, degree of punishment, degree of culpability, so on and so forth. But just one passage in Matthew 10, 14 and 15, the disciples are going out there to preach the gospel. They come back and uh, according to that report, it said, Jesus says this, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment. So the day of judgment is going to come. We're going to stand before the Lord. No doubt. No doubt about that. It says on the day of judgment, um, for the land of Sodom, I'm sorry, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for that land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Why is that? How bad was Sodom and Gomorrah? You know the Old Testament, you know the story, you know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But he's saying on that judgment day, those who had that gospel preached to them, we came to you, we told you about Christ. Christ was in your midst. He was right there and you still rejected him. So it's going to be more tolerable. So there's definitely an indication of level of, of consequence and severity determined by that level of knowledge that you have. So again, we could do a whole sermon on that. We're not going to. I just wanted to give you that there. Because I know there's that nagging thing, this, this idea of it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. Why? You know, somebody who's never really heard, how could they be held accountable? This is how they're held accountable. We're in the image of God, and we owe him. So Charles Hodge says this. He's a great theologian. He said this, those who sin without the written revelation, although they will be judged fairly and will be treated less severely than those who enjoy the light of revelation, are still to perish. So nobody is off the hook. Then he goes on in verse 13 and says this. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So the point that he's talking about here, he's not saying if you do the law, if you work the law, then you'll get into heaven. He's not saying we're saved by our works. That doesn't happen. He, he's saying that everyone to one degree or another, whether you have the written law, whether it's the law that's written on your heart, you have heard that law to one degree or another. And he says it's the doers of the law. It's the keepers of that law that will be justified. But the whole question is, and the whole question in Romans, the whole question in the Christian life is, who can keep the law perfectly? That's the idea behind Who can do it? Can you? Can you? Right? Can, can anybody, has there ever been a time where you said, yes, I've perfectly, I've never had a thought, I've never spoken sin, I've never did anything that transgressed the law of God that shows I'm a sinner, that just confirms the fact that I'm already a sinner. 
How many of us could say that? See, that's, that's, no one could do that. Romans 3, 20 says this. We'll get to this. For by the works of the law, no matter how hard you try, no matter how, you know, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do the best that I can and try to regimate my life to, to, to do, to do, to do everything that's good. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law tells us that we can't keep it. We need to run to Jesus who did keep it for us. Amen. It goes on in Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. So there you go. You want it? You want to do it that way? Go ahead. Give it a shot. Give it a try. You can try all you want, but you have to keep that standard perfectly. If not, see you later. You're done. That's the, he's hemming us in. And the law is meant to, in part, to show us that we can't keep it perfectly. We can't do enough. That's why Jesus had to come. One of the reasons, because he did it for us. That's grace. Amen. We love Jesus. Praise God that he's done that for sinners like us. All have sufficient knowledge of God's law, but no one is able to meet the requirements of that law perfectly. This is why the ones who never have written revelation will still answer to God. They're not off the hook. Get that through because that's a big pushback in our culture today. Big pushback in the world today. How can that be fair? How could God do that? This is exactly how God could hold everybody accountable. And they'll receive just punishment according to their, according to their knowledge. Here's how. They demonstrate... As image bears, because you were made by God who created you. You're made in his image. You're not made in Buddha's image. You're not made in Allah's image. You're not made in nature's image. You're made in God's image. So who's that make you accountable to? That makes you accountable to him. That makes all of us accountable to him. No matter who you are, if you're born, you're accountable to God as an image bearer. To one degree or another, you know his law and so will answer to him. Paul, Paul gives us evidence of that. I'm, I'm being very redundant today, and this is very purposeful. I want you to get this. I want you to get this because, again, there's so much against this. And this, we have to stand firm here. This is what makes salvation so sweet because sin is so serious, and we're accountable. And this makes us want to bring that gospel out to the ends of the earth so people hear and may be converted. It's not a game that we're playing. This is the, the consequences are eternity. Heaven or hell. So what he does is he gives three big proofs. He, gives, he shows evidence that we have the law of God written on our hearts. He doesn't just say it, but he shows evidence. He gives that, the evidence for it. He gives proof in three big ways. So how does he do it? This evidence that we have the law of God written on our hearts, that we are accountable to him. Verses 14 and 15, he says this, For when the Gentiles, those are the unbelievers, not the ones who have the written law, who do not have the law by nature, they do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. Do you see that? They show the law of God written on their hearts. So, what he's doing now, he's positively expressing that the law is written on our hearts. It shows up, number one, in our behavior. You know God, and everybody in this world, to one degree or another, has that knowledge of God. How can we tell? Because it shows up in the things that they do. It shows up in, the, in their behavior. Again, this is positively expressed. He says, when they do the things that the law requires by nature, they show themselves that the law of God is written on their hearts, which holds them accountable. It shows up 
unbelievers who do not have the Scriptures do so many things that conform to the Scripture that are in line with the Bible, in line with the law of God. By nature, almost instinctively, they know and are accountable to God. He says they are a law unto themselves. Now, what's that mean? They're a law unto themselves. They make up their own law. They do their own thing. No, he's saying a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the written law, like the Jews did, even though they don't have that written law, they display a knowledge of God, a knowledge of God's law in their lives, the way that they live it. How do they do that? How do they express a knowledge of God's law in their lives? Anybody want to answer? No, I'm just on test. Anywhere you go, every culture, to one degree or another, it doesn't matter where you go in this world and on this planet, to one degree or another, they're going to have things that are valued, they're going to have things that are honored, they're going to have things that are respected and even expected from the people there. Everywhere that you go in this world and on this planet, it doesn't matter if they've heard the word, it doesn't matter if they've had the law of God preached to them, the gospel preached to them, They show forth the works of the law when they do it by nature. So how do they do it? You go to anywhere in this world and you'll find some people that are honest to a degree. It says to, you know, in so far, whenever they do it, even though they don't have it, when they do it, they show it. Not that they do it all the time, but you will find people that value truth. They just value truth. You'll find people that are hardworking. They never had the, the Bible, but they work so hard and, and they work honest and they earn their living and they're very productive and they're good members in society. You'll find that apart from the, the law of God and saying, look, here's how you're supposed to live according to the Bible. People do that almost extinct, instinctively. You'll find people that never had the law that have integrity, ingenuity. People won't take what belongs to others. They'll know. That stealing is wrong, basically, no matter where you go. For the most part, again, we live in a fallen world and this gets corrupted. And, you know, some, some cultures are farther along the sin path than others. They're not as enlightened. But you always find some. You'll find people that are truly love their spouses, sometimes more than those who have the law. They're faithful to their spouse and to their children. And they work hard and protect and love and care. And wives are submissively loving their husbands and their families. And they don't have the law of God before them. The generous, sacrificial, content with what they have. Courageous people that put their lives on the line without the law of God, without being told. They're just doing this. See, this is just everyday thing. Like, yeah, of course. Like, what's the big deal? You know what the big deal is? It's showing the law of God written on their hearts and they're accountable to him that they do know him. You have people that are servants dedicated to helping humanity and on and on it goes. Every time... And listen to this. Every time that an unbeliever does anything that comports with the law of God, they're betraying the fact, if you want to put it that way, it betrays the fact that on some level they know God and they are reflecting his righteous standard. Therefore, they are accountable to him. Do you understand? That's a big deal. That's, that really need to get that in. They are, you know God. You could say you don't, you know, you know him. He's placed his law on your heart to a degree. And when you do these things, when you do those good things like that, you're showing that. You're, so people everywhere decry murder. You know, you don't have a society anywhere in this world. When you murder somebody, the people cheered. All right, you murdered that person. You did a good thing. Let's celebrate. Now, again, there's pockets of people in sinfulness that and kind of live in that way. But generally speaking, you don't see that. Why? Because of God. 
Here's the big question. What makes these good things that people do, being honest, being sincere, being hardworking, what makes those things good? That's the question you need to have. What makes those good things good? Well, God does, right? These are requirements of his law. They're not nature's law. These things just aren't naturally in that way. They're not just social constructs that we come up with. They're social constructs within these, but it's not something that we just kind of, these are inherent in every person you see in every society. And when we do them, we show the work of the law written on our hearts. So when a person does love honesty, who's an honest person, it does show what's that, what's that commandment tied to? She's trying to answer. She's saying, that's the, oh, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's it. That's the commandment. That it speaks. They're going to tell the truth. That's a commandment of God. That's inherent in God. Truth just doesn't like, well, here's, we just discover the truth. Or preserving life, not murdering. That's from God. Thou shalt not murder, right? Being faithful to your spouse. That just doesn't come, that is God's commandment written on your law, that I'm going to love my spouse. I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm going to honor my father and mother. When you honor and respect authority, you're showing the law of God written on your heart. See, that's what Paul's saying. You can't run. You, there's no excuse for not knowing God and not being accountable to him. Capiche, does that make sense? I'm driving this home because that's what Paul is doing here because that's what drives us to Christ. Now, of course, in all the good things that we do, is tainted with our sin. We sin. We break the law of God all the time. That shows how deep our need is for Jesus Christ and how important it is to preach the gospel, right? Because we don't keep the law perfectly in any way. By the way, just as an aside, um, this universal awareness of God's law is really the foundation for C.S. Lewis's uh, mere Christianity. So this is what he bases his whole book on, what we were just talking about in, in that point. So when people do what the law requires, they show that they know that it's written on their hearts. That's what Paul says. They show the work of the law, verse 15, written on their hearts. Then he goes on to say, while their conscience also bears witness. So that's number two. So we have the law of God written on your heart. So the things that you do, every good thing that you do shows that you know, to an extent, the law of God and you're accountable to him. You're not off the hook anywhere. Number two, it's your conscience. Uh, in the Greek, the, the word for conscience is kind of a moral awareness. And that's kind of instinctively knowing right from wrong in, in that way. Um, our conscience bears witness to the law written on the heart, right? And we're reminded of that here. Paul says, it is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness of that. So we have evidence of conscience even in uh, throughout Scripture, just one passage, Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. Their conscience was convicting them. It was accusing them in that way. And they ran away from the Lord. Again, we can go on and on with that. Um, I've heard the conscience described as a courtroom uh, in our souls, in our minds, in our souls, where our moral decisions are constantly on trial. So in a way, that conscience works as a gift from God that works to evaluate decisions against the ultimate standard of God's law. That's what the conscience goes against. So you feel the pangs of conscience all the time, right? We love having a clear conscience. Don't you love it when you're right? Now, there could be pride in that because when you're right, you're right. I'm right. I know I'm right. You know, you got to be real humble when you're right. 
Because that's another sin that you get into. You get in trouble that way. But don't you love having a clear conscience? And it doesn't matter what anybody says. You know that you didn't do that. And your conscience is clear in the way that you acted or what you did because it was the right thing according to God's moral standard. That's what it comes down to. So you know, you, you feel the pangs of, of, of the conscience when you, when you transgress the law of God. So, so say, say somebody did something very heroic, whatever, and was awarded for that. But somehow you receive that award. It, it comes to you instead of the person that rightly deserves it. And you get $10,000 for this wonderful thing that you did, but you really didn't do it. You just received the reward. So what happens in you internally? Like initially, the pang of conscience is going to be, you know, hey, this isn't right. This isn't, why isn't it right? Because I didn't do anything to deserve that. And beyond that, which commandment am I breaking when I, when I take something that doesn't belong to me? That's right. I'm stealing that. So it goes right back to God's law written on your heart. That's what the conscience is measured against. Right? So what do you do after that? When your conscience gives you that pang? Well, that's a different story. <laughs> Some of us are kind of push that conscience down and justify, hey, they gave it to me. It's their fault. My money. Right? I'm going to walk away. I'm going to keep this money. Or if you find money on the street or whatever, you're going to turn it in. All those areas you can get into your conscience. That's a safeguard that God has given us. And, and everybody has one to, to one degree. Or, you know, we, we're, we have that in us, right? And it shows that we know the standard. When you keep the standard, you have a clear conscience. I didn't do anything wrong. Mm. When you violate the standard, you have a guilty conscience, at least for a while. Because the thing about the conscience is what? It's been affected by the fall. Um, is it the cricket on Jiminy Cricket? Let your conscience be your guide always. Don't listen to that. That's bad Disney theology. That's not biblical theology. The conscience is not a perfect guide, you know, because we can sear that conscience in unrighteousness. Like Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.12, that they become callous, that they're dulled to the sense of right and wrong. And we see that all over the place today. Nobody, we've talked about, that person doesn't have a conscience. Well, they have a conscience. They've just seared that conscience. They've ignored that conscience. It's hardened to the things that are right, but nevertheless, it shows that they know God. As a matter of fact, we're living in a day and age where people um, believe that they're right when they're violating their conscience. They're doing something sinful. They actually believe that it's noble in their minds. That's another sermon. They kind of soothe or ease their conscience by saying, you know what, everybody's committed adultery. What's the big deal? You know, everybody's doing this. So what's, so you kind of soothe or try to ease your conscience in that way. It doesn't take take away from the fact that it's meant to be a safeguard and it is common to all. And it's another way that shows that, hey, this is you know God. Everybody has that conscience. What we do is uh, we we suppress that. Generally, our conscience indicates whether we've kept or broken God's law. And then the third one, very quickly, is our thoughts. Verse 15c says, um, not only do we have the law, when we do what it requires, we show we know God, no matter where you go on this planet, no matter our conscience um, shows that to, to a degree as well. And then our thoughts. It's just a little different than conscience. It's really related, but there's, there are some distinctions. It says, and their thoughts, accusing or even excusing them. Um, when he talks about the thoughts in that way, that's kind of the idea to sit back and actually think about. Which, like, you know, if you do something with your conscience, you you take it, you have that, uh, your conscience convicts you, you, you choose to obey or not in that way. When he talks about our thoughts convicting or, um, when he says, our, our, our thoughts excuse, accuse or even excuse, kind of in the same vein as, as, as our conscience, but the idea is more of uh, evaluating, kind of, kind of sitting back and thinking about it, thinking it through, 
right? Um, what, what are my real motives in doing this? Like the, the moral choices, the consequences if I do this, if I don't do this. So when he's talking about thinking, the thoughts, it's more deliberate in that way, right? So, so that determines whether you're acting out of sincerity or selfishness. I'm going to think about this sacrificially or is it self-preserving? Is it right? Is it wrong? Right? It's measured always against the standards of God's law. So if you're entering into temptation, some people will say, well, I'm thinking about having an affair with this other person. What are they doing? They're thinking about it, right? They're probably, you know, pros and cons. Well, you know, I really am attracted to this person. I don't get the love I need over here. Uh, this person gives me attention. This person doesn't give me attention. This person excites me. This person is adult. So you're kind of thinking it through, but you're always measuring against God's law, right? So your thoughts either excusing, right, or accusing you. So if you go for it, your thoughts are going to, well, I'm going to go for it anyway and do it. If I don't, well, I didn't go through with it. So my thoughts... Uh, actually give me peace in that way. They they excuse them in that way. I didn't go through with it. So so these are these are things where the Lord has given to us to show that we know him. And you need to understand that as Christians, because again, a big deal today and a big pushback is how how are people held accountable that never really heard, that never really had the written word of God. Well now you know. Don't don't be tempted to say, well, I don't know, as long as they follow what they have, you know, then God will be gracious in that. That's one of the excuses that are used today. So you could be a totally pagan, you know, Hindu, but if you're a real good Hindu in that way, in those areas where it touches Christianity, because there's always some touch points, well, then God's going to take that and honor you for that. No, 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 no. You should be accused. You're worshiping false idols. It's a false religion. You need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not excusing you in that way. You should be, it's showing that you're accountable to God. So so when you see people doing that, it's like, we want to give them slack and a break in that way. We have to be strong with the gospel because all of us are accountable to the God who made us and the God we're sinning against. You know, you're not sinning against a false God. You're not sinning against Buddha. You don't need to be forgiven by Buddha, right? You don't need to be reconciled with, with the universe. Some people think that kind of thing. You need to be reconciled with Almighty God who made you. And the only way to be reconciled is through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why we send missionaries. That's why people go to the deepest parts of jungles wherever on this planet to bring the good news of Christ oftentimes at the cost of their own lives. That's also a big deal in our churches today. We're not going out as much as we did. We're not as concerned with these lost souls who know God, who are going to answer to Him. Well, we have the answer for them, don't we, in, in, in terms of the gospel itself. But I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to be a missionary there. And even sometimes most of the missionaries we're sending these days aren't really proclaiming the gospel. They're helping in the, in the community. Hey, we're building houses. We're putting roofs on. We're feeding people. We're clothing people. Good stuff. But that's not what they need, mostly. Mostly they need the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the food, the clothing, and the shelter. But they need the gospel. So we need to send missionaries out with the word of God. And people have gone out, and they've risked their lives, and they've lost their lives, and they've given up their comfort to bring the good news to the lost. Because that's what we need. Because we're all accountable. And we have the issue, the good news is in Christ. Because in all of these ways that we talked about this morning, when you obey that law, when you do, when anybody does anything righteous and good, you know that they know the law. When they break that law of God, when they do something bad and evil, they've broken the law of God. They need the Lord Jesus Christ. 
when their conscience is dealing with them, that shows that God put that in them that shows they're accountable to him. Everybody has that. Even our thoughts, thinking it through. What are we going to do? Weigh the decisions. In all these ways, people, even those who've never read the Bible, never heard the gospel, show that they know and so are accountable to God. <clears throat> but most importantly, they show their need for Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus, the one, and this is why we go, who was born under the law. He was born under the law. He had to keep that law, and he did that perfectly for sinners like you and me. Don't you love that? What you can't do, he did. At great, he was tempted in every way. Don't think, oh yes, this is a piece of cake for me. I'm just coming down. In every way, he was tempted, yet without sin. That's how much he loves you. Right? He knows that you can't keep the law. He knows the law condemns us. But he loves you that much to keep that law for you. He wasn't doing it for himself. He was doing it for sinners like you and me. Amen? Not only did he keep that law, he paid the penalty that that law required. So when you break that law, what's that mean? Don't, can't, you can't stand when somebody breaks the law blatantly, but there's no consequences for them. That's happening more and more in our day. So you're watching the news and you're like, oh, he should be punished. You know, they're letting him go free. Why? Clearly guilty. We have that sense of justice in us. That's another reason. There must be payment for the transgression. Well, Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. Keeping the law perfectly, but also, this is what's so amazing, paying the price, taking the punishment that the breaking of that law deserves. That's how much he loves us. To take the, to, to take the punishment that we should bear because of our sins that we rightly deserve, he substitutes himself in our place, takes the sin, takes the punishment our sin deserves. See, see what nobody else, no other system can do this or does it. It's all about you. Any other system, go ahead, try it. Go ahead, try whatever you want. Check on any other religion, any other philosophy. It always comes down ultimately to you, what you do. It might be syncretistic, but ultimately it's what you do. Christ has done it all for us. Who could pay for your sins? That you might not be punished. Only Jesus. And he reconciles us to God because he's the one we sinned against. He paid the penalty for the breaking of the law. He was buried and raised on the third day. And he offers hope and life to all those who would receive him. Right? And this is what Paul is getting to. But as Paul's working towards the good news, he's given us the, the news that you need to know. That we are lost, that we're sinners, that we can't do it apart from Jesus Christ, no matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter how much light you've had. You've had enough to know God and you've rebelled against him. And yet he sent his son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul said here, even those without the law will perish. Christ gives eternal life and he is our hope.